time for the Vintage Truth Podcast with best-selling author and Bible teacher, Jeff Kinley. All right. It is a Monday, and we are here at Vintage Truth World Headquarters right here in the Ozark Mountains. And we're talking about prophecy, Bible prophecy, and specifically the rapture, because last week we talked about is the rapture a hoax or is it a blessed hope? And we began to really dive into some of the objections to the rapture and how some people try to explain it away these days. And we began to talk about some of the evidences from Scripture for the rapture. And I'd like to dive right into this thing today by looking at a passage of Scripture in First Thessalonians 4. Uh, beginning in verse 13, where we see really the quintessential passage for the rapture of the church. But, you know, before we jump into that, you know, you go back to John 14 and Jesus last night with his disciples, right before he was crucified. And Christ says to them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also to any Jewish mind in the first century. This would have immediately brought to mind the imagery of a Jewish wedding and the custom behind the Jewish wedding. And I've got a lot more about this in my book, Wake the Bride, but basically in the Jewish wedding, the groom would betroth a bride, then they would be engaged for a period of time, and then while he was away from her, he would be preparing another room in his father's house, and then he would come and receive her. And the whole idea is that the groom would come unannounced to snatch her up unexpectedly and take her to the wedding feast. And that's the whole idea. It's the promise of Jesus Christ to come back to receive his bride to himself. is If there is no gathering up, snatching away of the bride, then why would Jesus use such a familiar and powerful engagement wedding metaphor to mirror his return for us? I think that would send a very confusing message. And yet that's exactly what he did. But over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we, we see this passage here. And, you know, we're going to get into this passage today, and if we don't we don't finish it, we'll, we'll just finish it on Friday. But here's the deal. So Paul is writing to people who are confused about the last days. The Thessalonians are confused, and the reason they're confused is because false teachers have crept into the church, and they have they're they're not authenticated by Paul. They're just self-proclaimed teachers, and by the way, we have thousands of them out there today. They've not earned the right to be a teacher of the Word of God. They just fancy themselves as a Christian, whatever, blogger, teacher, author, preacher, whatever, right? And they're propagating ideas. That's exactly what was going on in the first century. So Paul had to set the Thessalonians' minds straight. And part of the confusion was the fact that they thought, oh, they didn't even know what was happening to, to people who had already died in Christ. And so Paul had to tell them, and through telling them this, he teaches them about the rapture. And this is probably something 
that Paul had already taught them because we read over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he talk, he's talking about the end times. He says, do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? So when Paul spent time planting the Thessalonian church and time teaching them there, he likely had already gone over this truth with them. But hey, we're forgetful people, right? And we're susceptible sometimes to the lies of others. So it begins in First Thess 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. You see, we talked about a couple of podcasts ago how today kind of the prevailing spirit of the age is that, oh, you really can't know anything. You can't really be sure or certain of anything about your faith. Even within Christendom, people are like, oh, well, that's what you believe. You can't really be sure. Well, you can't. According to Paul, you can He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That just means they've died. That you may not grieve as do the rest of humanity who have no hope. You see, those without, the rest of humanity is anyone without Christ. That means the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Hindu, it doesn't matter. If If you're without Jesus Christ, you have no hope for those who have died ahead of you and you have no hope for yourself according to Paul not my words there is he says for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again and we do even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus so let's say you you've got a a, a mom or a dad or an uncle or a grandma or whatever that's gone on right Paul is saying that at some point Jesus is going to bring them back with him, meaning he's, he's going to come back. Why, why is he coming back? What's he going to do? Let's read on. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, this is authoritative, okay, that we who are alive and remain until this coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So they're going to come, back before we are taken up and what is that going to look like well he tells us for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of god and the dead of christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and thus we will always be with the lord okay so let's just notice a couple things about this passage here because he actually gives us a chronology of the rapture you know how, how the slow-mo guys on youtube they slow everything down to like i don't know 250,000 frames a second or whatever and you see everything in just super slow motion that's what paul does in this passage he slow mows the rapture for us so that we can understand what's going to happen even though it happens in an instant we can now just slow the tape down and take a look here's what he says first Jesus personally descends from heaven. It's not, he's not going to send somebody, not going to send an angel to do it for him. He says, he himself will descend from heaven. But he won't come all the way to the earth like he will at the second coming. It just says he comes in the air. All right? And it says he, it, there's a, an accompanying shout. In other words, he'll cry out with a loud voice, maybe like he did when he called Lazarus out of the grave. I don't know. But what will he say? What will be that shout? 
going back to the wedding motif, will it be something like bride come forth? Nobody knows. But I'll tell you this, we can be certain of four things about this shout of Jesus. Number one, it's going to be loud. I mean, shouting usually is loud, right? It's going to be loud. Secondly, it'll be heard only by believers and by every believer on the planet. Nobody's going to miss this shout. Thirdly, it'll be unquestionably the authoritative voice of God. Jesus Christ himself, God in flesh, will shout. And then fourth, it will be the summons of a bridegroom calling his bride to the wedding. So he descends with a shout. Secondly, it says Jesus' shout will immediately be followed by another voice, that of the archangel. You say, well, gosh, what, what's an archangel? Well, I'll tell you. This class of angel is a very unique and privileged class, and, and it possess, this class possesses great authority and responsibility among the angelic host. Now, Scripture only tells us one archangel's name. His name is Michael. However, there's evidence in Scripture to suggest that there are more like him as he is called one of the chief princes. And that's in Daniel 10:13. So we don't know if this is Michael or perhaps another angel who's like him, whose specific responsibility is to intervene on behalf of the church. In any event, this angel also is going to shout, perhaps a voice of triumph. More likely, it's the shout announcing the arrival of the groom. Because see, in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins, Matthew records, quote, at midnight there was a shout, and the shout was this, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him, end quote. Now accompanying these two unmistakable voices is also going to be the trumpet of God. Did you know there was a trumpet of God? <laughs> that God has trumpets? In fact, we hear more about the trumpet in heaven than any other musical instruments. Trumpets get your attention, don't they? You can't just hear a trumpet sounding and just look the other way. No, trumpets are going to get your attention, right? Now, trumpets are not a, as common in our culture as they were in the first century world, but in ancient times, these instruments were used to announce perhaps the, the arrival of a king, something like that. But in ancient Israel, the trumpet was blasted to summon God's people to a gathering. We see that in Exodus 19 and Numbers chapter 10. So when you hear the trumpet, it's a call for the church to gather. I mean, maybe instead of church bells, like church steeples with bells, you know, they have the ring on Sunday mornings in neighborhoods, maybe there should be trumpets instead. Just somebody at a bell tower just blasting a trumpet, saying, hey, it's church time. It's time for the church to gather, right? That's what's going to happen to the rapture. You see, Paul wrote also to the Corinthians that he said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will all not sleep like the rest, but we will all be changed. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. That is 1 Corinthians 15, 57, excuse me, 51 through 52. So here we got Jesus shouting, the archangel announcing, the trumpet of God blasting. I mean, my friend, this is a dramatic moment in earth's history. Even more so in the history of the bride of Christ. Could there be any doubt as to the reality of this event? I mean, it's right there in your Bible. Every true follower living uh, of Jesus Christ living on earth will be captivated by this compelling chorus of sound. But hey, that's not all. 
Fourth, these announcements are followed by action as Jesus now performs a mid-air miracle. It's his first on-site miracle in 2,000 years. The first time he's actually physically come down to the earth and done a miracle in 2,000 years. So the creator of the universe punches a hole through space and time and supernaturally suspends the laws of nature, and you won't believe what he does next. The Bible says that corpses are going to come bursting out of the graves all over the planet that will be changed, changed. Funeral services are interrupted. Death is defeated. Humanity's last enemy is destroyed by this coming Christ's resurrection power. You see, God designed our physical bodies to function in this physical world. We're not made for heaven. Our physical bodies are not made for heaven. So when Christ comes back, those spirits that are going to be resurrected, or excuse me, those bodies are going to be resurrected from the grave are going to be changed to be reunited with their heavenly spirits, and we're going to be changed as well. We're going to have new bodies that Scripture says are imperishable, heavenly, spiritual, not of flesh and blood, immortal, unable to die, 1 Corinthians 15. So the spirits of believers who have been in heaven will be reunited with their newly resurrected bodies. And then we, or whoever's left on the earth that are believers, will be caught up with them in the air. And that word caught up that Paul uses here is the word, Greek word harpazo, which is translated into the Latin rapture, which we get our word rapture from. There, there you go. What's interesting is that this word literally means, this harpazo word, means to seize, to capture, to carry off by force, or to claim for oneself. It also means to suddenly snatch away. It's the word that was used to describe Philip in Acts chapter 8, being snatched away and suddenly transported really teleported miles from his previous location. It's the same word that Paul used to describe himself being caught up into the third heavens when he was raptured up into heaven. It's the same word that Revelation 12:5 uses to describe Jesus Christ's ascension. He was snatched away. The word is used 14 times in the New Testament, and every time it refers to something or someone being, sne- being seized are snatched away. And in five of those times, the word literally means to be just to disappear or to be caught up into heaven. So in 1 Thess 4.17, this word harpazo or harpazoi is used to portray this event that we call the rapture. But two verses earlier, Paul uses a different Greek word to describe this event. It's the Greek word parousia or parousia. Parousia means a presence or an arrival. And it's translated sometimes the coming of the Lord, okay? And so we see this word in ancient history and in ancient secular literature used to announce the arrival of a king. But Paul uses it to talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. Now, this word is used, parousia, is used 24 times in the New Testament. Some of these times... This coming refers to the rapture, while other times it refers to the second coming. But wow, what an exciting word. Of course, the context determines which event he's talking about here. Now, this parousia, this harpazoi that Paul talks about is going to be a sudden event. We're slowing it down, right? Super slow-mo. But Paul says it's going to be really sudden. How sudden is it going to be? 
Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 says that it's going to happen in a flash in the twinkling of an eye. And when he says here that it happens in a moment, it's the Greek word atomo, A-T-O-M-O. What does that sound like? It's when we look at our, that word, we see our word atom there. And that word is a Greek word that is only used one time in the whole Bible right here. And it refers to that which, is, which cannot be divided or to an indivisible amount of time. Wow. Paul says it happens in the twinkling of an eye. You know, the average eye blink is about 0.3 seconds or 300 to 400 milliseconds. However, a twinkle, it's just that twinkle in your eye is only about 100 milliseconds or 0.1 hundredth of a second. So what's going to happen is that this thing, this event called the rapture, though, though we're slowing it down here, is really going to happen like a lightning strike, even faster. Before a person realizes that it's occurred, it's already happened. That's how fast it's going to be. That's how fast we're going to be caught up and changed. I mean, that blows my mind. That's a miracle. And where is the evidence that the early church believed in this kind of arrival that it could happen in, at any time? Not at the end of a tribulation period, but at any time. How do we know that it was prevalent throughout the worldwide community of faith in the first century? Well, theologians call this the doctrine of imminence or that Christ's return is imminent, that it could happen at any time. And if you think about it, put yourself in the skin of a first century disciple before we get to this, and we'll make it this next time. But just think about what it's like to be a disciple. Let's say you're, you know, you're James or you're, you're Chloe or you're, you're one of the early disciples, right? I mean, their Messiah had just been killed, okay? But then he rises from the grave, unexpectedly, by the way, defeating death and confirming that he had just paid for their sins. Then he goes back to heaven after 40 days of teaching them. But before doing so, he promises to come back and return for them and take them to heaven. When did they think there was, this event was going to happen? Well, the answer is at any time. That's why. That, that's the answer. The first century disciples were very motivated by this promise of Jesus and, and by the way, friends, living in the day and age of the Roman Empire they lived in, they were very motivated for Christ to come back at any time. The next generation of Christians who came after them were not privileged to witness the presence and miracles of Jesus like the original disciples were. Therefore, they were eagerly waiting on him as well. They couldn't see him there, so it's like, well, we can't wait to see him, to see him in person. And, and that's why we get this doctrine of imminence. Or, imminence just means it's, it's something that's pending, something that's inevitable something that's just about to happen, it's forthcoming, that's next to occur. And there was this huge, now watch this, huge spirit of expectancy for the Lord to come. That's why they greeted one another, Corinthians tells us, with the word Maranatha, which just means may the Lord come. Think about that. Instead of saying, hey man, what's up? Or how's it going? Or good to see you in church today. They said Maranatha to each other. That's how much they were looking forward to the rapture in the early church, in the first century church, is they actually greeted one another with the word Maranatha by saying, hey, may the Lord come, brother, sister, family of God. You know why they said that? Because they expected Jesus to come back at any time. You know what? We don't. I'll tell you why they believe that 
and where we see that in Scripture. Sound good? All right. Have a great week. I'll see you on Friday. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Truth Podcast. Please subscribe and share with a friend. For more about Jeff's ministry, go to jeffkinley.com.